Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. Upholding County Judge revived hopes of a family searching for answers in a 1960 murder today. The judge approved the request of Nancy Eagleson's family to exhume her body to search for DNA evidence. Eagleson was 14 years old when she was abducted while walking home with her sister Cheryl from the movies on November 13, 1960. Her body was found early the next day and no one has ever been charged. The family believes there may be some DNA on the body or inside the coffin. Cheryl says she hopes this is the first step in getting long awaited answers. I always ask myself, you know, why didn't you take me? Why didn't you take me too? You know, um, and I was left behind, but I think I was left behind for a reason now. As I said, I have a, a nice, beautiful family and that, that's why. And I can't keep asking why. So, but I'm just so happy uh, that, that we get this, uh, got this yes. So we can kind of maybe put an answer to some of our questions. The family has 75 days to have the body exhumed. We'll continue to follow this story for you. Hello and welcome to a very special two-part episode of Who Killed? Episode 199 and 200. I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. And it would not be an episode of Who Killed if I did not have the most popular guest on the episode today, and that would be one Nick Edwards, the host of True Crime Garage. And welcome to the show, Nick. Hello, thank you for having me. Congratulations on making it to episode 200. It's uh doesn't sound like that great of an achievement, right? 200 doesn't seem like that big of a number, but I beg of everybody out there, all the listeners out there that don't think that it's that great of an achievement. Troll around on the internet, troll around on your podcast app, on your on your phone or your favorite listening device and see, just you see how many people have actually made it to 200 episodes. It's There's a lot of people trying and not a lot of people getting there. And Bill, you've done it. How long? Has it taken you to get to uh, 200? Officially, it has taken me four years and one month. So Beautiful. Uh, kind of uh, about 45 a year, 48 a year episodes. So, uh, yeah, it's worked out pretty well and uh, so far so good. And we've covered a lot of interesting cases and you and I have covered some interesting cases together. And... You've been involved with a certain uh, nonprofit, and you guys actually had some really big news uh, that just happened recently. And uh, could you give us a little background on uh, this case about uh, Nancy Eagleson? So I'll kind of fill you in on all the details here because we covered this case on True Crime Garage, and the victim's name, as you said, is Nancy Eagleson. This case is 62 years old. It's an unsolved homicide case, an unsolved abduction and rape and homicide case out of a little corner of Ohio called Paulding, Ohio, which is a village. It's too small to have city status. And the village of Paulding, Ohio is actually the county seat of the county of Paulding, Ohio. Now, it's such a small area, small population area that I've lived in this great state for all of my life, and I had never heard of Paulding, Ohio before. 
Now, what was so interesting to me about this case here, Bill, and a little bit how, you know, we'll, we'll take the listeners into how the sauce is made a little bit here, right? When, when I first was told about this case, I thought that would make a great episode for True Crime Garage, right? We would be able to tell people about a case that most people haven't heard of, some people have forgotten about, and that's what we do. We provide a voice for the people that, that are don't have a platform. And so I wanted to bring Nancy's case into the spotlight, at least the garage spotlight, and tell all the listeners about Nancy's case and remind everybody out there that have heard of the case from people from Ohio, some people from Toledo in the Defiance area, they've heard of this case and remember this case, but remind them that it's still unsolved and it's still an open case. So I thought this would make a great episode. Well, we end up doing four episodes on the case because once you really start diving into this thing and peeling back each layer of the onion there, there is a lot of story here. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of suspects that have been considered over the years. And the way that I got involved with this case is rather unique. It's not how we typically do things here in the garage. In fact, I got involved in this case through Porchlight, which, as you know, and we've talked about Porchlight on your great show many sure. times. Porchlight is a nonprofit organization that I work for and donate my time to and a organization that you have spoke highly of on your show and been gracious enough to allow me to plug what it is that we do and, and request the public's help here on your show. And we're basically a nonprofit organization that helps victims. We, 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 we are looking to be a victim advocacy program here in the state of Ohio. So if we have a cold case, we are going to represent the person that was murdered as well as helping out their family members and loved ones and friends who are still left hurting and have not been able to find justice for their loved ones. So with the Barbie Blatnick case, that's kind of the case in Ohio that we're, we're well known for. That case was 30 years old. It was a cold case homicide case, and we used DNA genealogy, familial de genealogy detection work to find the perpetrator, find the killer of Barbie Blatnick. And that man, his name was not even in the police file. And that that's no reflection on the hard work that the police put in on Barbie's case at the time. They did gangbusters work on the case. It was a complicated case, and it turns out she was killed by a complete stranger. And that's that makes sense that his name would not have appeared in the case file because there was no connection between victim and perpetrator in that case. So we end up getting an arrest in that case, in a case that's over 30 years old. So we're kind of known for that case. Now, a lot of people think that that is the only thing that the Porchlight Project does, that, that it's simply we're looking for DNA and we're going to do genealogy work on it and solve a case that way. That's not technically it. We, we try to offer a variety of services to the victim's families. And in Nancy's case, the case is 62 years old. And there wasn't 
a lot in the way of evidence that was stored at the Paulding County Sheriff's Office. Yeah. And I mean, so, yeah. It, it, 62 years. Some of it. So in, in a lot of these cases, especially these old ones, you do have a lack of evidence. One, they didn't know what to collect back then. Two, they didn't know what to hold on to if they did collect it. And then three, and this is going to be jarring to some people, but it, this does occur. This is not the only case that I've I've uh, worked that have experienced this, but the evidence is lost. A lot of the physical evidence in Nancy's case has been lost. Now, is that due to time? Is that due to malfeasance or what have you? We don't know. We can't say. And, you know, everybody and their brother can be as angry as they want about the situation, Unfortunately, there's nobody to blame or even point the finger at because the people that are currently working her case, the Paulding County Sheriff's Office and Ohio BCI, the people that work there today weren't even alive. Some of them, most of them weren't even alive when Nancy was killed. So the the current regime is not responsible for whatever happened to that physical evidence. So. And yeah, we, and in, in regards to that evidence, though, I mean, when you have a case that's so old and you do come across this a lot and it does anger, you know, obviously the family and stuff. But I mean, think about it. Police off, you know, police departments change buildings. They uh, go through the digital to or, you know, print to digital phase where stuff can get lost. And there are a lot of opportunities for it to get lost. And again, malfeasance yeah i mean sure that's a case-by-case thing because if there's somebody within the department that's purposely doing that then that's one thing but you know this is again a long time ago stuff is going to go through the cracks it's just part of the the way of the world unfortunately and her family her sister, she have she has two sisters, Meryl and Cheryl, that are still around, and they are fabulous people, wonderful individuals, and they're fighting very hard for their sister even to this day. And they, you know, they're they're angry about the missing evidence, and rightfully so. But you know, it's it's one of those situations where I don't know if it's so much a finger pointing issue because. The sheriff's department says, look, we don't have this. We don't know why we don't have it. But, the you know, we have to keep in mind. Can I ask you, uh, did they have an inventory list of what they had originally collected? And that's why they're able to say, yeah, we don't have this, 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 and this. Yes. So the inventory list would have consisted of things like her clothing, because her body was found relatively short after short period of time after she was abducted. And we'll get into the details of the case here in a minute. But and that's one of the things that's so haunting and scary about this case really is is how quickly her body was found. But so you, the physical evidence at the time would have been her clothing, anything that was her personal belongings that was with her that night, as well as there were some things from the crime scene or at least where her body was found that they collected as well. And these things would have been like hair um, and I think there was a broken tree branch that was collected. So the sisters, the family, and a lot of people in the community are upset that the, this physical evidence no longer exists, or at least it can't be found. And 
you also have a situation where there there there's some questions of who actually lost it. It should have been the in the custody of the sheriff's department would be my expectation. But you also have even back then you had crime labs you had you know the, the they it's a small area so these these items these physical items if they were going to be tested for anything would have been shipped off elsewhere to Toledo likely would be my guess and you also have the the funeral home that that took care of Nancy's services and some of those items could have ended up there as well so it's not so easy to just point your finger at the sheriff's department and say what the hell happened here, guys? So Nancy's case, let's go back 62 years, okay? And this was a case that took place November 13th, 1960 in Paulding, Ohio. Now, when this case came to me and one of the services that we thought we would be offering, the Porchlight Project, to the Eagleson family was simply renewed media coverage of their sister's case. That's one of the services that we can offer. So when we're sitting around in our meeting and somebody says, Hey, has anybody heard of this Nancy Eagleson case? This was brought to us. All the cases that Porchlight takes on are cases that are brought to us by somebody in the general public that, that submits an inquiry or a recommendation. Could you look into this? Sometimes it comes from a family member of a victim. Sometimes it just comes from somebody that grew up in the area but this one found us in a weird way. So there is a, a lady named Rachel, wonderful lady. She is a part of a website called Uncovered.com. So Uncovered.com is working to create a national database of cold case homicides and missing persons. And this is quite the undertaking because there's there's a ton of these cases as you know out there bill but what's so brilliant about it is some states have these databases of unsolved homicides and missing persons but to my knowledge there's not one comprehensive one that that's very thorough and and complete nationwide and so that is their goal and they're doing a very good job with it they're in the uh early stages of this but it's the website is up and running and there are thousands of cases on there so if anybody wants to check out uncovered.com do that but the way that this case comes to porchlight was through uncovered.com so rachel who is part of the the creation of uncovered.com and if I have that wrong, I apologize to anybody out there. I don't know the workings of un Uncovered, but that is what I believe it to be. And so she reached out to Porchlight. She actually grew up in Paulding. And when she started this website, her I, a relative or somebody, maybe her father says, hey, you, you must include the Nancy Eagleson case. And that's when she is, Rachel's then brought up to speed from her relative about this case that is at the time in 1960 and for a very long time, this was a very infamous case in that area. Now, when we're having our porch light meeting and we decide, yes, we can, we can get renewed media coverage on this case. 
So we have a few people on our board members that work for some different news outlets. And so that's always a possibility. But those news outlets that that they work for, they are in another part of the state of Ohio. And people that have never been to Ohio, they don't realize how big this This is a big state. Lots of big right? cities that are a lot of medium sized cities that people don't even realize that are there. I mean, Dayton, Youngstown, Finley, and, Toledo. And how long, how long does it take one to get from Cincinnati to Cleveland? Five or well, four, four, four and hours. a half, five hours. Yeah. Five. If you're driving real slow, real slow <laughs> with some Columbus but, traffic. Thanks. But to the for, Buckeyes. for example, I live, it's, for example, I live north of Columbus and Paulding, Ohio is in the northwest corner. I always get east and west screwed up for whatever reason. Not there's that no easy way to get there. No, there's no easy way to get there. It's a two hour and 20 minute drive from from my street. And again, I'm I'm north of Columbus, so it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's right on the Indiana state line. The yeah. the Paulding County line butts up to the Indiana state line. So anyway, we're having this conversation at our little roundtable discussion, deciding on how we can help in the Eagleson case. And the news outlets that, that we have connections with, they're in a different part of the state. So, of course, they True Crime Garage nationwide, thank God, worldwide. It's the worldwide garage cast. Um I said, you know what? I I love, I am I have a fascination and a deep intrigue with Ohio cold cases, and that's part of the reason why I found myself working with Porchlight, and part of the reason why I'm doing True Crime Garage. And so I said, of course, I I would love to take a look at this case, especially if the sisters are willing to talk to me and, and help me out. And so I said in our meeting, I go, uh, and I know that with these smaller towns. It's really the county, the sheriff's department the, that you want to be dealing with. That, that's going to be the investigating agency. So I said to the group, does anybody know, happen to know what county Paulding Village is in? <laughs> and one person in the group, this is a pretty smart group of people. There's like 10 of us. One of us, go, <laughs> one of them goes, I believe it's in Paulding County, Nick. That would make a lot of sense. And I thought... I've never even heard of Paulding County. There's 88 counties in the great state of Ohio. I memorized about 75 of them. So <laughs> Right. I'm going to yeah. give you that test. I just, <laughs> I just lied. I just lied to America right there. The um, world. The whole worldwide garage cast. Um, so anyway, I had to figure out where Paulding was, and I they had uncovered and put a good amount of information on Nancy's case on their it, website it's it's impressive it's it's an extremely impressive uh collection of information i mean they have the timeline they have the maps they have i mean you weren't kidding when you say that this is a an undertaking of great um you know mass because there's so many unsolved cases and yeah the, the amount of detail that they have in just for you know nancy's case is impressive because again that was 62 years ago so uh, very, very cool that they're doing that great project. Well, and they have so much information on Nancy's case because of a couple of reasons. One, the sisters have been active working this case and reminding the public about this case for years Two, 
the sheriff's department is eager to help in this case too and, and get the media involved as well. So you have this situation where everybody's kind of coming together. This to me, you know, I, I've done several interviews, a lot of Fort Wayne, Indiana news interviews because Fort Wayne's probably the closest major city to to Paulding. Yeah, it is. And they're more aware of the case than some people in Ohio. And so doing these interviews with these news outlets in, in Fort Wayne, I've said, you know, this to me is community crime fighting, community crime prevention, community justice for the victims at its greatest. I've, I've been involved with Porchlight for years, been doing True Crime Garage for seven years. I've never seen a collective of people come together like this. I mean, you're, we're talking the sheriff's department, the victim's family, the whole community of Paulding Village, Porchlight, Uncovered, um, it, the, and the list goes on and on and on. It doesn't stop there. And so I've been very impressed with the community that's come together to fight for Nancy Eagleson. Why are we fighting for her? Because she was a victim of a horrific crime. And listen to this. This is this is downright scary shit right here. November 13th, 1960. It's a Sunday. Okay. Nancy Eagleson. She's 14 years old at the time. She's with her five-year-old sister. Now, they don't live terribly far from the downtown area of Paulding Village. And so they are downtown, and they're going to go to a movie. And from my understanding, it may have been a double feature that day. They go to this movie, and afterwards, they decide that they're going to, they're going to need to walk home. And they're going to make a few stops along their way. Their first stop is at a locally owned restaurant. They stop in there to have a soda chit chat and then they continue along their walk their next stop they stop at the bowling alley why do they stop at the bowling alley this is because their father has like a weekend gig at the bowling alley right so he's got a regular nine to five monday through friday job and it sounds to me like he kind of works at the bowling alley for fun more or less not necessarily for money gotta get the free games well, you know, you know, one thing that I used to do, especially when I was younger, is that if there was a place that I liked to hang out, I would try to get a part-time job there because I would eat, I'd be there anyway, so why not get paid a little bit to, to be hanging out? So that's what I think uh, Mr. Eagleson was doing if I had to had to Nothing wrong figure with that. that. Nothing wrong with that at all. So he's, he's working at the bowling alley. They stop by. They drop, because it's on their way anyway. They drop by this bowling alley, and it sounds like, they wouldn't mind getting a ride home from dad. And dad's like, the, see, these are one of the, the heartbreaking moments. You know how it is, Bill, when you're looking at these different cases. There are these little heartbreaking moments where you know, you know that everybody is going, damn it, if I would have just done this one thing differently, our whole world would have been completely different. And Nancy and her little sister, Cheryl, they drop by the bowling alley. They hang out briefly, ask dad for a ride home. Dad's like, yeah, I can give you a ride home, but my shift isn't over for like another 45 minutes. 14-year-olds don't like to wait, do they? So unfortunately, Nancy and Cheryl decide to continue on, and their home is not very far from this bowling alley. We're talking half a mile at most. Yeah, I mean, it says five blocks uncovered. So, I mean, just 
not very far. And again, this is a very small town. Yes. Small town USA. And anybody that's been to like these, these towns that, that still, that you feel like you're almost transformed back in time when you go to them. This is a town where you have the town square, the downtown Paulding area. Everything's really in this square. And then once you get outside of that, it's kind of these uh, different roads with, with houses on both sides. Now, they're going to go, they walk over a bridge, and they're on their street this this whole time. They, and they have to pass this uh, closed down, I don't know if it's a gas station or like a little convenience store or whatever, but it's not in operation at the time. And when the two of them walk past this, now keep in mind, it's November. So it's already dark by the time that they're making this walk. And they walk by and it's believed that there was a vehicle that was parked there. And they walk past the vehicle. And then at some point they realize that, hey, there's a car behind them. Now, it's uncertain if the vehicle is the same one that was parked at the abandoned gas station. That's just so creepy. And it's the vehicle though, Bill, it's like, it's kind of trolling them, right? It's like idle speed, slowing down it, you know, walking speed isn't very fast. This person should be going 35 mile an hour on this road and whizzing right by them. You know, that feeling of being followed is a true feeling. And if you feel it, generally you are. I mean, it's it's just it's an instinct that you have as uh, fight or flight um, takes over. Uh, I think it's uh, common for people to I mean, I've been followed. I mean, I was followed mm-hmm. when I was 11 years old a year after Amy's disappearance. And that scared the crap out of me. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think, you know, it when it's happening. Do you know that it's happening now? Cause I'm following you on Twitter. Oh, zinger there. <laughs> um, Hey, uh, so they, they're walking right. And there's some brief conversation between the two sisters that they realize this, there's a car here and they have an uneasy feeling about this. And the, the driver of the vehicle slows down And there's a couple different versions of this story. So I'll just try to be a little more thorough than necessary. We don't need to pick apart exactly what happened because it's hard to say. There's, there's really only three people that know and two of them aren't talking. And one of them was five years old and traumatized by this experience. So the man rolls down the window, asks for directions or something like that. Drives off and then comes back and asks for if they want to ride. And when this is asked, what what is the directions portion is a little in question, but the asking them if they want to ride is not. Cheryl says that one. I remember that 100%. The man asked us if we wanted to ride. And I remember that because my sister Nancy said, no, thanks. We are only a few houses away. Now they're like four houses from their own and they are in front of somebody else's house. There are homes that line the sides of this street. 
This man gets out of his dark-colored four-door vehicle, runs up to Nancy, grabs her, and throws her in the back seat of his vehicle. Meanwhile, Sister Cheryl tries to fight for her sister. He, she runs up and tries to hit or grab the man, to which she's quickly pushed away, thrown down. The man gets in the vehicle and speeds off. Cheryl, having just witnessed her sister's abduction, runs to the nearest home, which the terrifying thing about this whole, I mean, look, an abduction is horrifying and terrifying on its own. Now let's compound that with the idea that this person did it in full view of several homes It's a Sunday night in small town, Ohio, 1960. People were generally home at that time. Yeah. And he leaves a witness. He didn't care that there was another witness there and no attempt to take Cheryl at all. This is Michael Myers type stuff. Yeah. yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. If Mike Myers had a car. So... I think he did in the last one. She runs to the nearest home, which is right in front of where they where the abduction took place. And pounds on the door. She's screaming. Homeowners answer the door. It's people that they know, like the, they're neighbors of the Eaglesons and people that had actually babysat for uh, Cheryl at, at one point. Anyway, there's some delay in reporting this. And this, this is also scary stuff and also a sign of the times back in 1960, right? The, those people didn't have a phone. They didn't have a home phone, which was not terribly uncommon back in 1960. So they had to race off to a phone somewhere and call the sheriff's department and, and tell them, Hey, Nancy Eagleson was abducted right in front of our house. And here's the description, the best that this five-year-old can give you. And, Nancy Eagleson is depending on what article you read or what timeline you review, she's found approximately six to seven hours later. She was sexually assaulted and she was shot in the head and, uh, she's found in a wooded area, not terribly far from the abduction site. It's like six, seven miles. From the abduction site. And to be honest with you, Bill, if you look at this on a map, it's almost like she was abducted and then just driven down the road. And we don't know where the assault took place. We don't know what kind of assault took place. We also don't know where she was killed. Was she killed where she was found or was she killed elsewhere? There's a lot of debate and has been for 62 years on that. Was she killed where she was found or was she killed in a possibly in the vehicle that took her or was she taken elsewhere for a brief period of time? Those are things that we cannot answer. We don't know the the answers to those questions, but what a horrific crime and what a horrific case. She, the police are out, the Eagleson family's out looking for her and she is found by hunters that are out raccoon hunting that night, which you hunt those type of animals at nighttime and they find her body in a, she's about a hundred feet off of a, a country road. 
I've been to that country road and it's still very much a country road. And I would bet in 1960, it was probably a gravel road. And so there are a few missteps that I think by the, the sheriff's department back in 1960 that I would, would wish that would have been worked differently. Um, I believe that this individual one would have based off of Cheryl's description of the abduction. So this was a unique situation for me where not only did I have the description of the abduction and had been to the site of the abduction, but in this case I had been to the site of the abduction given the description by the only witness Cheryl and I walked that little stretch of road where her sister was abducted from. And the Eagleson family showed me the site where Nancy's body was later recovered. And both situations, I would believe that tire tracks would have been made by the perpetrator, especially at the, for lack of a better term, dump site or the body recovery site. Sure. And I think that the, the, a misstep there was not collecting those tire tracks if they did exist, which I do think that they, that they would have, because given the lay of the land, if somebody, we have people out looking for this girl. If that vehicle that placed Nancy in that wooded area, a hundred feet from the road was still on the road, country road or not, the reflectors would, would pick up and have been spotted by people out looking for her, but they weren't. Why weren't they? That's because I think that the person drove off the road and closer to the tree line and it kind of dips down. It's not quite a ditch, but it dips down from the road there today. And there is some thought that the the uh, perpetrator's car may have even struck a tree stump. Whoops. So there there is some collective agreement that possibly that this person would have went off road at some point. Now, why the tire tracks weren't weren't uh, collected? There's a there's a lot of reasons why. One, this was not a a very well secured crime scene. Sure. Absolutely. It's 1960. They they didn't know to do this, and 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 it's not just no to do it too. It's the the sheriff department consists of like three people. Yeah, they don't even have then. the tools so, to, to 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 even. You don't like, even have the personnel to, that's what to set up a perimeter and I, say, "Hey, yeah. don't drive over here." That's the word I'm looking and, for. Perimeter. You can't even set up a perimeter with three people. I mean, you don't even have probably caution tape back in the day. I mean, it's just. They probably, I don't know, but I could see how that would easily be something that investigators, as much as it's frustrating, yeah, they could see them not being able to, um, well, I would say this about the tire tracks is who knows if they drove, did they drive their cars down there too? You know, like did they, and that's what I suspect happened. Yeah. So they mixed them all up and so they don't know what's what and. But does it matter? I mean, should they have taken a or cast? Or trampled over them. They, yeah. could, they could still have taken a cast of the stuff and, you know, seen what happened. And abduction murder cases are rare today in Paulding County. Yeah. Even more so 62 years ago. 
And so this case, it it was, you know, so I, when we first took a look at this, the whole idea was that True Crime Garage was just going to do an episode on it. And it, it quickly, with all the people coming together and all these agencies coming together and wanting to work and help on this case, it, it immediately became much bigger than that. So once I learn a whole lot more about this story, we end up doing four episodes on it on True Crime Garage. And that's because there's there's no shortage of of suspects in this case, which makes sense. It is 62 years old. People get suspicious of damn near everybody mm-hmm. on a long enough timeline. Sure. We've all seen that. But the other thing that one thing that was impressive that the sheriff did, I actually, there, there was some really good uh, police work done by the sheriff at the time. So one thing that he did that was really impressive was he was in contact with two other jurisdictions during the early, the first year, let's say, of his investigation of Nancy's case. So one was a jurisdiction in Illinois that had a similar type case. One was a jurisdiction in Michigan that had a similar type case. This is almost unheard of, we, right? The, the linkage blindness that took place amongst police departments and sheriff's offices in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s had so much trouble connecting series of homicides, and it was such a benefit to serial killers at the time that these jurisdictions weren't communicating with one another. Here, 1960, we have Sheriff Keeler from Paulding County who is in, cons- who is in communication with, il- with a jurisdiction in Illinois and in Michigan discussing details about their open cases. That's almost unheard of in 1960. So, what, so he deserves a big kudos for that. What were some of the things that stood out between the cases that made them connect them or think that they may be connected? Uh, victimology was one in both of the cases. Uh, we were talking about uh, young girls. So Nancy being 14 and in the Illinois case, I think the the girl was even younger than that, probably about eight. Now the murder weapon, while it was not the same caliber, it was in both cases in Illinois and the Paulding case, Nancy's case, it was a gun that was used to kill the victim. So in the, in the Illinois case, the Illinois case is very strange and it's connection to Nancy Eagleson's case. Very strange as well. So the way that this plays out, Bill, is that we have, Um, a little girl who is abducted on her way walking to church. This is the Illinois case. And she's taken to a wooded area, assaulted and shot. Sound familiar? That's what happened to Nancy. Sure does. On Sunday, the date, the, the next day is when Nancy is abducted and similar circumstances. Now, In Nancy's case, we have a witness to tell us that it was an actual abduction. In the Illinois case, there is some thought that maybe the victim had been being groomed because there was a lot of people out on the street that day, a lot of neighbors, you know, in and out of their homes that day. And we know that the victim in Illinois was abducted 
within about two blocks of her home because she didn't have very far to make it to church. And we have eyewitnesses that see her walk past her street and make it onto the second street. So it's about two blocks from her home that she's abducted. And there's some thought that she might have been being groomed because there's no one to say, Oh, I heard a scream or I saw some kind of scuffle or, or I saw some guy pulling a kid into a car. There's nobody saying that. So there's some thought that either she was tricked into getting into the vehicle quietly or that maybe the perpetrator knew her and had groomed her a little bit and she was willing to go with him. Sounds a little like Amy. I mean, yes. minus the bruise. Exactly. And the victim's name is Gloria Kowalowicz. Yes. And she was on her way to, from what her father says, is she had recently taken on um, communion at her Catholic church. And I'm raised Catholic, and we did communion, and I, I, I never experienced this, but the father says that all of the kids her age were to take communion once a day for two weeks straight. So they were all trekking off to the church for communion daily for two weeks. Sounds like rush period or like, yeah, hey, I don't know. There's something weird about that, but yeah, I, I've, I haven't heard about that before when it comes to the, uh, to communion, you know, I had a lot, I mean, I grew up in a very strong Catholic, um, city and uh gosh i just don't recall ever hearing about that particular but then again you know i was a kid what do, what, what do i know but well and so but you were catholic that is, you said you didn't know that i mean i don't know maybe i didn't church i never heard of that either okay um but you know maybe it's an old school thing we again we're talking 62 years ago yeah and we're and also talking about small town and they might have their own traditions in this small town you know church i mean it's just they could be the way they've done well, it for a hundred years. This is the Illinois case, and it's actually um, oh, okay. very near oh, Chicago. Gotcha. Okay. I, so, sorry. Apologies to the listeners. But but what's crazy is you're right. Like think about the contrast between the two areas, right? Paulding, super small, super small population. Gloria's case in Illinois, Chicago, one of the biggest cities in this great country. So. Gloria is she either went willingly or she's abducted. And again, she's found she's found two very quickly. Like Saturday afternoon, she's abducted and then killed. And then we have somebody that later that afternoon finds her body. Question. Yes, sir. What is I know this is a, I mean, there are no dumb questions, I guess, but with the finding of these bodies so quickly, is there any thought that the person that is helping search is involved with the killings? So I know that in the Eagleson case, that was a, was a big suspicion and big time suspicion. Okay. And Gloria's case, I couldn't find that that was something that was suspected. Um, and with with her case, the the individual that, that found her was working. He was driving a laundry truck that day and he was on his lunch break when he finds he sees something suspicious. 
and then reports it. So I don't know if they were easily able to take a look at him and maybe his route that day and figure out that he couldn't have been the one to have abducted her. I, I don't know how that worked out. In the in both cases, they have suspects, but early on they shared a suspect. And what was weird about that was there was a a, a young man who had recently been released from a like a like a mental institution, right? It was still a thing then. Yep, and he he was recently released in uh, Illinois. So he steals a vehicle and then he's picked up on the Monday after Nancy's killed in Indiana. So for those of you that don't own maps or didn't pay attention in school, you have Illinois and then to the east you have Indiana and east of that you have Ohio and then north of all of those you have Michigan, right? People say you only went to college for computer there's going to be a test at the end of the show. So I hope everybody's paying attention. So when this dude is picked up, he's picked up in a stolen car and he's, they find some blood on his clothing and they ask him, you know, where he's been, what's he doing in a stolen car? He says that he went up to Michigan and he's, they know he's from Illinois and they have blood on him. Well, one could very easily have driven from the area where Gloria was abducted and killed, made their way through Indiana, up through Paulding, Ohio, through Defiance, Ohio, and then continued on up into Michigan and then start to make their way back. So they got this dude and they're like, maybe he maybe he stole the car and used it to kill Gloria or stole the car and just went on a killing spree and we caught him. We found him sleeping in a uh, stolen car in Indiana. So he's arrested and he's immediately considered a suspect in both of these uh, homicides. And he has the classic serial killer name. (laughs) Robert Lee Stovall. Just the three. I mean, I mean, (laughs) come on. That is like perfect for being a killer's name. Like just sounds Henry Lee Lucas, Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee is not a great name. No, Arthur Lee Allen. Wayne. Wayne is the one that you really want to avoid. If you don't want to raise a serial killer, start by not giving him the middle name of Wayne or the first name of Wayne. Yeah. That's that's signing the, the individual up for uh, for some to be a sadist. That's like anyway. some omen stuff there. <laughs> yeah. So he's this dude's found sleeping in the stolen car in LaPorte, Indiana. He's wearing bloody clothing. He tells the police that, look, the, the, my clothing is bloody because I was in a bar fight up in Michigan. Uh, he's kind of lying about where he's from. He's lying about where he was going. He's lying about the vehicle. He says that it was his sister's vehicle. And then they're like, they run the check on it. They're like, yeah, this doesn't belong to your sister. And he's like, oh, I met my sister's boyfriend. And then they're like, yeah, that doesn't work either, man. Uh, you stole this car. <laughs> so he is promptly returned to Illinois. And I believe he was institutionalized again afterwards. Now, the problem, though, Bill, is nothing really comes of this lead. As as guilty as this guy looks and as quickly as he, his name found its way to the papers is as quickly as it disappears 
from the papers. And it seems to be that Paulding was a little quick to believe that, that Robert Lee Stovall had nothing to do with um, Nancy's murder. Now, again, the caliber of gun that was used in, in Gloria's case and Nancy's case is different. So that there alone points to the somewhat likelihood that it's a different perpetrator. And it would be difficult for an individual, not impossible, clearly, because they picked up Robert Lee Stovall and thought that maybe he was the killer in both both cases. But we can all agree that it would be difficult for a person to kill, abduct and kill somebody in Illinois on one day and then the very next day abduct and kill somebody in Ohio. It It's not impossible, but it would be difficult. So as quickly as these two cases are connected, they are, are then they kind of go their own separate ways. Now, if we fast forward in the Illinois case and the Kowalowicz case, there were a lot of similar crimes going on in the greater Chicago area leading up to Gloria's abduction and murder and even afterward. And to this day, Authorities believe that there were probably more than one serial offender operating in that area at the time. And they believe, I don't know how much this is based off of evidence or just off of lack of evidence, right? Because you can connect things either way, but lack of evidence or evidence or otherwise to this day, it, the belief is that Gloria Kowalowicz's case, while it still sits unsolved, is likely connected to one of those other series of crimes that was going on at the time. Yeah, it wouldn't have been unusual for uh, multiple serial offenders in the Chicago area. As we know, it's a very large city, as well as the fact that uh, this was 1960, and so it was very easy for people to just basically get away with murder. And I mean... They just didn't have the technology. So, unfortunately, Gloria is killed in 1960, and there were seven unsolved child murders that plagued the region since 1955. And in 1961, they actually put together a task force. And our coverage of of this story was about Nancy Eagleson's case and Gloria's case became part of that story, but that was not the investigation that we were going into. So once the, the, the paths kind of separate there and the investigations take different avenues and different directions, well, that's when we kind of stepped aside from Gloria's case. I'm guessing and I would like to go back and revisit this more in depth on a future episode. But I'm guessing that it's through the work of that task force that was created in Chicago that they determined that that her case was likely connected to some of these other cases. Now, I know that a lot of true crime people that are really dialed into the community and dialed into these old cold cases listen to your show, so... One of the cases that is in consideration for being connected to that maybe a lot of your listeners have heard of would be the Grimes sisters, Barbara and Patricia, age 15 and 13, mm -hmm. who were killed in 1956. Um, so that's one that's in consideration to be 
Uh, we know that the detectives that worked the Grimes case consulted with the detectives that worked Gloria's case. So there, there was at least enough thought to have that communication and those meetings that took place back then. Gloria's case, very sad stuff and, and remains unsolved to this day. Nancy Eagleson's case, again, unsolved and, and remains so to this day. With her case, with the Nancy case, Bill, mm-hmm. oddly enough, there's thought that her case may have been linked to a serial offender in the Northwest Ohio area from the time. And so that was always the debate in the village of Paulding, the great debate as we should call it, because that's truly what it is. I've been up to Paulding a couple times and man, I'm telling you that first off the best people in the world right there. I mean, just some of the, the greatest people, the community there is it's like family. Like it, you, you just feel like the whole town is one big extended family. Everybody knows everybody. And, and, you know, when I contacted the sheriff, his name is Jason Landers. Great guy. Um, you know me, Bill. I'm fairly tall myself. I, I met uh, Sheriff Landers, and I was a little taken aback because he's about a head taller than I am. And I thought, I'm never going to commit a crime in Paulding County. I do not want this guy tackling me to the ground. Um, so I met with Sheriff Landers. Again, great guy. And he tells me first words out of his mouth, Bill. The Nancy Eagleson case is the most heartbreaking case in the history of our county. That's sound invested to you. I yeah, think so. And I would doubt that it's, I mean, I would highly doubt that's not the case. I mean, again, Paulding County and Paulding are small, small rural communities in Western Ohio and Western Ohio, as much as there's, you know, big cities that dot the interstates that go up, you know, towards Michigan, again, these places in between are little small farm, you know, based towns like classic 1950s. I mean, this was 1960, but I mean, very Mayberry, very, um, you know, just your typical Norman Rockwell, small town. And on that note, we are going to conclude this week's episode of Who Killed? Episode 199 is in the books, and we are on deck for episode 200. As you know, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, as well as if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can do so by following me at BillHuffman3. You can uh, follow me on Instagram at slow underscore burn media as well as if you'd like to donate to the show, you can do so via the Venmo app with my username at bill-huffman-3. As always, I would not be here without you guys, so thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you so much to Nick, the co-host of the True Crime Garage podcast, and again, you can find their show wherever you get your favorite shows. So thanks again. Tune in next week for part two of the Nancy Eagleson case. And until next time, stay healthy and be safe. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, 
then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.